WBZ original. If you want to get down in the mud and roll around with a pig, mm -hmm. uh, you better beware of the consequences because it might become hard to tell who's the pig and who isn't. That's dark. <laughs> I've been watching a lot of Mad Men. Hey, welcome to another edition of Studio BZ. I'm John Keller. And I'm Paula Evan. Hey, Paula. Hey, John. Good How to are see you? you? Good I'm to see right. you, too. Uh, this week, we're talking more championships, more problems. We had Dan Roach in for a really fun conversation about is Boston becoming the most hated city in the country because of all of our championships. They don't call us mass holes for nothing. <laughs> and uh, speaking of popular and successful, Governor Charlie Baker's the most popular governor in the country, according to poll after poll, but a little bit of pushback on him from within his own party. Really? Politico's Lauren Dozenski was out covering the state party convention in Worcester yeah. this past weekend. She breaks down a little bit of the color of the backlash against Baker. Worcester's where all the good fights start anyway. Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. From Central Mass. And uh, Lisa Hughes is a huge music fan. We'll tell you what she's listening to in her monthly playlist. And then they call it the Nerd Prom, yeah. the annual White House Correspondents <laughs> Association dinner. Hollywood for ugly people? Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, it, it it frequently provokes uh, some backlash because mm -hmm. of, usually because of the comedian that hosts it and, and the things they say. And this year took the cake. We'll tell you all about it and about uh, uh, what came out with the wash. You know, like the Boulder and the Indiana Jones movie? I feel like the White House Correspondents' Dinner is just out of control at this point. Someone, please pull the plug. <laughs> Our city is truly the hub. The hub of the universe. Right now, it's really peak... A peak moment, right, Danny? I mean, the Celtics are doing great, and when they get their team back next year, they might well be odds-on favorites to win the title. The Bruins are contenders. The Red Sox, I heard today, are off to the fifth best April start in Major League Baseball history. The rest of the country must loathe us more than ever. Uh, yes, as Kurt Schilling <laughs> once famously said, they hate us because they ain't us, is, uh, is, the, is the way to put it. And uh, it, it's it's really like you, you thought it would stop, all right? It started with the Patriots run, and everyone was excited, and they won all these titles. And, and then you saw the Bruins win the Cup. You saw the Celtics win a, another world championship. Sox so, won yeah, the three. Sox won three. So you're yep. like, okay, good. Uh, and, and then, you know, the Patriots felt like kind of almost a last hurrah when they won or they were participating in trying to win their sixth Super Bowl. And everyone kind of thought after that, uh-oh, but it doesn't stop. But just thinking about that Game 7 image the other night of uh, John Henry and his wife, Robert Kraft, and his girlfriend, um, and, and uh, Wick was standing there with his wife. There's this camaraderie now among the ownership and management of all four sports teams, five sports teams. And I, I don't know, maybe I'm corny, but I, lo I kind of well, love it. And me, I don't remember it no. in the 70s, and, 80s right. growing up. That wasn't going on. And let me take it a step further. I was sitting there getting ready for our 11 o'clock news after game seven on Saturday night. I'm, I'm on my iPad doing stuff. And all of a sudden somebody sits next to me and says, hey, what's going on? And it was Alex Cora, you know, because the Red Sox had rented two suites at Game 7, and the entire team was there watching. And they previously, earlier in the week, had gone to see the, the Bruins play in Toronto because they were in Toronto on a night off. So there's a big-time camaraderie amongst all four teams right now, and that's really cool. Like it's you amazing. said, you've never seen that anywhere else to that extent. And I think it, it's really bringing Boston, again, another reason to hate us even more. <laughs> so, Danny, the, yeah, this embarrassment of riches and all this self-congratulation raises a question. 
Surveys over the years recently have already shown the Patriots are the most hated team in the NFL by non-Patriots fans. The Red Sox are the second most hated team in Major League Baseball behind the Yankees. I don't know where the Celtics rank, but I'm sure over the years they built up a lot of hate. There's resentment of Brad Stevens. I would, th- I would think so. So, you know, you, you go on the road with our teams for big games. You interact with these other fans. I watch the games where, particularly Red Sox games, you'll go into Baltimore, and there are more Red Sox fans cheering more loudly than there are Orioles fans. Uh, How much further can this hatred of us go? (laughs) And do you encounter it it when you're out there? Sounds like my marriage. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, you see it. You definitely see it. And again, you, you don't... You know, I tell all fans, hey, it's great that they support their teams on the road. I mean, everywhere you go, uh, it's loud, especially road Patriot games and everything else. But if I was a Patriot, Bruins, Red Sox, Celtics fan, I would not wear my team's jersey on the road because it can get dangerous out there because of the drinking and everything else. And these guys go after you. So I would not do that. But uh, it can continue to get worse. The cool part of that, though, is is we're in a bubble here. You know, nobody cares. You know, I, I don't care how they react in Florida or how they react in Philly or whatever to, to the Boston sports fans. And the Boston sports fans don't care either. We love each other so much. There's so much love. Let it continue to grow and grow and grow and everyone else hate. Well, you know, it's there's true. a reason why they call us mass holes. <laughs> right? The yes. behavior could be better. Well, we are, there's a lot of arrogance. Yes. We are insufferable, are we not? Yes. But here's the thing that I yes. think is so interesting. You're hearing what you were saying. You think of the old quote from Caligula, let them hate so long as they fear. And somebody said, we are like Rome. You know, we have every sports team is at the upper yes. tier. But think about when we were kids. And it was, we were the lovable losers along with the Cubs fans. And right. the Celtics run in the 60s, undeniable, incredible, the Bruins. But the Patriots were nothing in those days. The Red Sox were always breaking your hat by late August. What a change culturally for Boston. Well, yeah. Psychologically. I mean, we talk about it all the time. I grew up, you know, you were a Giants fan as much as a Patriots fan because the Giants were on television every week and the Patriots weren't. They couldn't sell out down in Foxborough. the Dallas Cowboys. Yeah, right. So you watch those other games. And then with the Red Sox, growing up around here, for me, it was always like that was a good season as if they were in contention, in, in playoff contention on Labor Day. If they were anywhere near the top of the standings, it was a good summer. Yes. And now that is completely changed to where this is it's an embarrassment of riches with what we have here in New England. Danny, do you get any of that hate-filled feedback from your peers around the country, sports reporters in cities without this wealth? They give us more the jealousy. You know what I mean? Because being in our business, it's what you want to do. And and that's, you know, to be able to cover one, you know, championship run is is a lot for a lot of different people. And people continue to say to us, well, you know, outside of the, uh, uh, this market, they do sports features. They do all different kinds of things and trying to come up with different ideas for their sports casts. Here, it's just we barely have time to mention, oh, by the way, the Red Sox lost this regular season game today right. over at Fenway because you're covering the Bruins and the Celtics and the Patriots draft. All that so, low-hanging fruit. Yeah, so... So for here, they are more like, "Wow, you guys! It's this is it must be a blast." And you we have say, a lot "Yeah, to do. It, it never gets old." Now you mentioned you had a very wise warning to fans that go on the road to maybe tone it down just a little bit. Uh, I was just hearing this morning that in Tampa, the Tampa Bay Lightning management 
have banned opposition team jerseys and other paraphernalia from the arena. If you show up at the arena, I guess tomorrow night is game two, or or is it Wednesday? It is uh, Wednesday night. Wednesday night. If you show up at the Tampa Bay Arena wearing a Bruins jersey, they're going to make you take it off. And they'll hold it for you to pick up later. Which is just crazy. I've, ne- there, I've never you ever heard, heard of that. No. And I, I, Why again, are they doing that? It seems bad for the league. I think that they want to make themselves, you know, look good on TV with all the Tampa jerseys. And, you know, Winnipeg has this whiteout where everybody wears white T-shirts. So I think it's just more for their image, which is like kind of you know, strange. I mean, yeah. come on. Telling somebody you know, they well, can't wear their favorite team's jersey? Excuse yeah, me, no, Paula, no. Didn't the, was it the Broncos a few years ago before the AFC title game? Yes. They refused to accept tickets. Orders out of state from the out of state. Yes, because they wanted to get Broncos fans in. Have there. other teams done that too? I, you know yes, teams have continued to follow that up. And now there's different tiers. So, like in baseball, for instance, if you if you want to see the Red Sox play, it costs you know ten dollars more per ticket than any other team. Like the Yankees do do that. So it's I don't know. They're trying to keep the hate out, I guess. But I, everywhere I go. Uh, the the loudness of those fans it, it it's pretty incredible. That's like Caligula, like your Caligula quote there, Paula. <laughs> they they don't just resent us. They and fear. They fear us. They do. It kind of the jersey but they, thing, but they also keep you know, teams in business. You go to Tampa they do. to watch the Red Sox and Rays. It's all Red Sox fans. Well, it's like everybody they, knows. So they keep them in business. Everybody you know, goes same to see, Baltimore. Everybody you know? sees their grandma and grandpa down in Fort Myers to see yes. the Red Sox in spring training. Yes, because you can get tickets. Well, it's like the Yankees too. The Yankees, I think, remain the biggest road draw. Yep, and now right. the Cubs in, in baseball. Yeah. Those three teams: the Red Sox, Cubs, and Yankees. Because the Cubs finally broke the, their curse. You know so. what that jersey thing is not good though. It reminds me of, unfortunately, for Boston College. When you go to the ACC tournament, the Boston fans don't tend to travel yeah. the way Duke and Carolina fans do. And you go out to the ACC tournament wherever it is, it is just a sea of Carolina blue. Yeah. And you know there and are very the few other fans yeah. turning yes. out. You kind of think, oh, this but is disappointing. But BC football. Fans travel, right? There's they, always they tend uh, when, to travel more. But when it's they a get chosen for a bowl, group, I always smaller. hear the yeah. organizers saying, "Well, yeah. we like to have BC because sure. yes. those fans show it's, it's up." It's alum yeah. and things like that. For it's a smaller group, a different. but it's not yeah. what you yeah. have where there's transplanted people oh. on the West Coast following the Celtics and the Red Sox and the Patriots. Well, you know, just to bring this full circle, Danny, you pointed out how this has the potential to continue for many years, yes. given how young the core stars are on these teams. Um, covering politics for the last hundred years as I have, you know, if you look at it, there's sort of been the same phenomenon in national politics where, you know, we've had four major party presidential nominees from Massachusetts in the last several decades, Kennedy, Dukakis, Kerry, and Mitt Romney. In the Republican Party, there's always sort of a Massachusetts presence in national politics. And I can tell you from talking to people around the country, they're good and damn sick of it. Well, you (laughs) know where that comes from? In my mind, that comes from passion. You know, that's my favorite word that I use when I talk about any event, uh, any team, any any politics, things like that, is the, the passion that Massachusetts folks have for politics. We all know it's been legendary. And I think for their sports team, it's also created, Paula talked a little bit earlier about 
the camaraderie of all these teams rooting for each other. It's also created uh, a win now mentality for all these four teams. There's no rebuilding, you know. There's reloading, and but it's got to get done quickly because the Celtics. You better be able to sell season tickets because look at what the Bruins up and coming are doing now. And then the Patriots have set the standard. It's win win a championship or go home. In other cities and other towns, they're just giddy. Like if you go to Kansas City. They were giddy to make the playoffs just to get into the postseason where you're kind of out there and you're like, they're like, isn't this really cool that they made the playoff? And I'm like, no, you got to win a Super Bowl if you're in New England. That's the only thing you want. And so that's made it even ratcheted up another notch on sports talk radio, on everything that comes with Boston, the pressure, the amount of pressure to win. All the time is there on these Boston. So you're really holding the masshole banner high yeah, they, on the road, aren't you, Danny? <laughs> big time. Carry everybody hates on. us. Everybody hates each other within. It's Too all bad. kind. Of, it's like it's like a big you know episode of Dallas, all wrapped into Boston. Is <laughs> well, what it is. I would just put a period on it this way. I've always tried to explain over the years to my hapless New York sports fan friends that the chant, the ubiquitous chant at not just at Fenway, but you hear it at all Boston sports venues: Yankees suck is not a term of a derogatory term it's a show of respect because the Yankees have been so dominant over the years I think that's how we need to look at masshole that they call us that in a perverse show of respect for how wonderful we are what do you think I have a funny story when when, uh, the Yankees and Red Sox faced each other in 99 or 2000 in that postseason my daughter was three maybe somewhere around there and my wife went to the the Clemens Pedro matchup Roger Clemens versus Pedro Martinez and it was huge I mean that whole Yankees Red Sox went up another notch and back then it was so intense they were sitting in the first row of the bleachers behind the bullpen and all of a sudden you know my wife is uh, is concerned about my kids because my son was five I think my daughter was two and she looks over and she hears the Yankees suck chant and she looks over my daughter's standing on top of her chair screaming it <laughs> At the top of her lungs, and my wife goes, Tor, what are you doing? And she goes, I'm sorry. And she just started crying. She goes, I was just doing what everybody else was doing and everything else. Oh, how cute so, but is that's that? how they're raised. It now, is. So it's passionate. It, well, you talk about the thing, the everlasting Boston. It's it's oh, 20 wow. years now where now it's generation passing on to generation, not this, we, we oh, poor us, we're no. terrible, we'll never win. Now it's this arrogance of we're the best. And like it's your kids, not going to go away. Mine are between 18 yes. and 24. They've never seen losing. They have seen all four championship parades. Yes. They've seen several Super Bowls. We sort of have family traditions now around it. Things that yes. we do when you get to the championship game. That's insane. It's, what it, a you know, perfect emblematic image of Boston to be projected to the nation. <laughs> a little girl. A two-year-old girl standing <laughs> on her seat chanting Yankees suck. There should right. be a poster of that. That is great She learned stuff. to say that before she learned to read. Isn't that great? You should be a proud man, Dan Roach. Very proud. Well done. No. The sound of Governor Charlie Baker addressing the Massachusetts Republican Convention in Worcester this past Saturday on the scene, taking in every moment of it and reporting on it for Politico. Uh, Our guest, Lauren Dzenski of Politico. Lauren, welcome to Studio BZ. Thank you for having me. So, Charlie Baker, the incumbent governor, the most popular governor in the country, according to poll after poll after poll, 
wins the nomination with nearly 70% of the vote among the 2,400 delegates uh, in Worcester. Uh, but he's not going to have a free ride in the primary. Uh, Scott Lively, a pastor from central Massachusetts who uh, believes that homosexuals controlled the Nazi party in Germany, uh, got more than enough support to make it on the ballot. Why? It's it's an interesting question. <laughs> um, and I think the the way that the scene unfolded uh, at the convention in Worcester kind of explained why, simply because Scott Lively delivered a rousing speech that was completely in support of President Donald Trump and repudiated Governor Charlie Baker for not tacking closer to the Trump agenda, as as Scott Lively put it. He didn't talk about his beliefs about homosexuality. Uh, he really didn't talk about, you know, his, uh, you know, track record with, um, you know, connections to, you know, the Nazi party and homosexuality. You know, some pretty dubious things that, you know, will very much be litigated by, you know, the media and anyone who really looks into his record over the summer. But... This now means that Charlie Baker has a primary opponent. And, you know, it was it was striking to me just simply being in that convention hall with, you know, almost 3000 registered Republicans in Massachusetts. It didn't feel like it was a Governor Baker esque convention. You know, it didn't feel like it was in the mold of Charlie Baker. It There was a lot of presence and excitement around Donald Trump. And it was almost leaning a harder right to that extent. I mean, Lauren, I remember uh, the, the 1990 uh, Republican convention where Bill Weld, who went on to become governor, uh, was running against Steve Pierce, a more socially conservative uh, state representative. He was the House minority leader from central Massachusetts. Pierce was uh, opposed to abortion rights. Weld supported them. Uh, at the convention, while Weld was giving his speech, a delegate rushed to the front of the stage holding aloft his little infant daughter in a pink uh, pajama set, uh, yelling at Weld, do you want to kill her too? Wow. Uh, and Pierce won a huge victory among the convention delegates that day and got crushed by Weld in the primary. Same scenario here? Yes, yes. I, b- I believe that that will be the case. You know, this was this was also a bit of a, a proxy battle. Scott Lively represents the, the Trump uh, wing of the state Republican Party in a way that Charlie Baker simply does. And if anything, the turnout and the vote on Saturday represents the the unhappiness among these deep red conservatives in Massachusetts with Charlie Baker for not aligning with the president. Now, we we both know that President Donald Trump isn't exactly very popular here in Massachusetts. To say by the least. Any. Exactly. So the extent to which that tactic will actually be successful in the primary itself, much less any sort of a general election situation, I, I would be shocked to see any any real turnout there. Lauren, some pundits and reporters uh, describe this as a big setback for Baker. And I, I suppose he would have preferred not to have a primary opponent. Uh, let, let me be a little counterintuitive here and see if you agree with me. I think it, uh, it may just give Baker an opportunity uh, first of all, to get a little 
press coverage during the summer before the September 4th primary, and that the comparison sets Baker up nicely for his preferred narrative in the general election in the fall, which is, no, I'm not a Trump acolyte. No, I'm not a hard right social conservative. I'm Mr. Moderate Charlie Baker that the voters here in Massachusetts, including independents and Democrats, seem to like just fine. Yeah, I, I don't think you're too far off base there. I, if anything, I would actually agree with you. <laughs> um, Always a smart move, Lauren. <laughs> thank you. Yes. No, I mean, it's. This certainly isn't going to be a fun summer for Charlie Baker, having to have Scott Lively on the campaign trail railing against him. But at the end of the day, the things that Scott Lively is talking about, the things that Scott Lively has aligned himself with, are really not things that Baker was ever going to... align himself with to begin with. This allows him, like you said, to to talk about how he's a different type of conservative. And, you know, it may not necessarily mean that he gets 100% of the primary vote um, among, you know, Republicans and independent voters who pull Republican ballots in September. But come the general election, it allows him to kind of craft his narrative as someone else, especially as Democrats are trying to tie Baker to the Trump agenda. I mean, Lively ran as an independent in the governor's race four years ago, and I moderated here at WBZ-TV the only debate that included all the the independent candidates. And arguably, Baker's best moment in that debate was when he slapped down Lively for, if I recall correctly, uh, uh, being against gay rights. Baker, of course, is a staunch supporter, and uh, he actually has a gay brother. Uh, who he featured in a campaign ad. So it's a contrast he he likes. Yeah, and, and I think we'll definitely hear more of that narrative going forward. Yeah. Okay, so um, uh, now uh, we move forward uh, toward the general election, and uh, Charlie Baker has uh, it, it possibly, he's, Charlie Baker's possibly one of the luckier politicians I've seen lately. Uh, With all due respect to the Democratic candidates who have come forward, uh, they're not exactly household names, even within Democratic Party circles. Um, Newton Mayor Seti Warren just dropped out of the race just a few days ago. Uh, Will it potentially damage Baker to have this small but vocal and committed group of Republicans who seem to make it clear at this weekend's convention that they wouldn't vote for him if he were the last candidate on earth. It's, it stands to be seen if those were the types of people who were going to vote for Baker anyway. There was a, there was kind of a, a sense, at least among the folks that I was talking to in the convention hall on Saturday, that... Some of the support that Scott Lively got from Republican voters was more a a rebuke of Baker to kind of send him a message, but that they will fall in line with Baker come September and then ultimately in the general election right. as well. But this was this was kind of an a uh, higher profile opportunity for members of the party to really send Baker a message. Or and one other thing. Uh, there was was also uh, nominations made in the other statewide races, including in the U.S. Senate race uh, for the candidate to uh, face off against Senator Elizabeth Warren in the fall. 
and uh, Jeff Deal, a state representative who co-chaired the Trump campaign in Massachusetts in 2016, won the party endorsement. Uh, also making the ballot, uh, former GOP state official Beth Lindstrom and businessman John Kingston. Full disclosure here, uh, my, my grown son Barney is a Washington-based political consultant whose client list includes Mr. Kingston. One thing that caught my eye there was that Deal, in his speech to the convention, didn't mention his hero, Donald Trump. What did you make of that? I was shocked as well. I was absolutely shocked. But this is, I think it was also a nod to this general election campaign that will ultimately have to take place. The people in that room are not representative of that general election populace. And so in order for a true victory to occur in November, Jeff Deal knows how unpopular President Trump is in Massachusetts. I will also add that Beth Lindstrom, um, one of the other candidates who made it onto the ballot, also did not pr mention President Trump. She spent most of her speech railing against Senator Elizabeth Warren, right. which makes sense. They're all trying to run against Elizabeth Warren. I guess the last thing you want if you're a Republican on the ballot this November is for your race to be some kind of referendum on President Trump. Exactly, exactly. Lauren Dzenski from Politico, thanks for joining us here on Studio BZ. Thank you for having me. Oh, can I ask you a quick question? Mm -hmm. After I say who I am and what I'm listening to, just start talking about stuff? Yeah. Great. Okay. This is Lisa Hughes, and there's a lot of good music right now. I have been listening to Pirates, which is the new single from Brazilian Girls. Brazilian Girls haven't put out a record in 10 years. And I absolutely loved their other releases. Um, and this just picks up where the other ones left off. If you're not familiar with their music, think a slightly edgier delight. Remember? Grooves in the Heart? Okay, so it's sort of like that. Um, really fun, uh, great to dance to. They're also really good live. Doesn't that sound so good? It's like it just says, spring is here and anything could happen. <laughs> I don't know. Just listening to them makes me happy. And I found I was listening to a, a lot of really serious stuff in my car. And uh, as soon as this came out, I, I made the switch. So it's back listening to fun music now when I can. Brazilian girls are not Brazilian, and there's only one girl. Um, it's, it's all guys and one very talented, um, energetic woman. And um, when I saw her the last time at, I want to say the Paradise, she was wearing something on her head so that you could never actually see her face, which sounds like that would be distracting, but it actually was kind of cool. Sort of like... Uh, a Sia thing, almost. Um, and I don't think she always performed that way, but at least that one time uh, at the Paradise, um, it was it was a very memorable get-up she had on. <laughs> this 
Um, another song that I love, not new. Um, my husband has like an 11-year-old car that he's not going to part with until the thing absolutely dies on the side of the road. And as a result, he doesn't have Bluetooth. He has no way to play music in a modern way in his car. So he still has um, CDs. So over the years, I made CDs of songs that I liked <laughs> so that we weren't always listening to um, either, you know, whatever radio station he had on or whatever one disc was in the car for a long time. And one of the songs that's on one of the discs is De La Soul's Pain with Snoop Dogg. And I'm telling you, like, you can't not like this song. Like, even my six-year-old, when it comes on, he'll say, don't turn this off, don't turn this off. It's just a great, soulful song. Let me see how many palms go up high if you ever felt the world had to lick. And what you wave from side to side to symbolize needing help when the sand pull you under quick. Big you know, it's interesting because... Uh, I've always, I've always liked De La Soul. I haven't listened to as much Snoop Dogg, um, but I think this, it's a little more subdued for sure. Um, but I think the the same sort of smart songwriting, memorable lyrics, um, and just something that you feel could only be theirs. I guess I feel like De La Soul has such a. Um, they have their own sound, and it's interesting how well Snoop Dogg works with this. I love the band The National, and uh, they don't have anything new out. Um, but um, Matt Berninger, the lead singer, uh, sings on a new Churches single, "My Enemy," which is on the new the Churches record. I think is going to be released May twenty fifth, and I believe it's called "Love Is Dead." Anyway, I could listen to Matt Berninger sing anything, and so to hear his sort of low beautifully gravelly voice um, with Lauren Mayberry's pristine, you know, beautiful voice. Um, it, they work so well together. In the moment you could be honest You could wake up love, But your jealousy is more blind than love I love the national, and um, it's almost like uh, it's like a food group. You know, when you haven't had enough of it, when I saw that he was contributing to this song, I thought, "Oh, I absolutely have to listen to that," and I really like it. Um, there's just the quality of his voice is such. The song "Graceless" by the National is, you know, like top twenty. Now it's funny because you know. I, Going to live music is hard, right? When you work nights, you live vicariously through everybody who goes to live shows. Um, and so I feel like I'll I'll check the listings and I'll rule out anything that's, you know, Monday through Friday. <laughs> the last show I saw was a band I have not seen in, I'm going to say, 20 years. I saw The Wedding Present at the chapel in San Francisco. And I brought my daughter, and this is not her kind of music, and I don't care. This is part of her education. We get there, and the crowd was small at the beginning. Really cool venue. It's in an old church. Um, 
And the opening performer, her music is, or was, I don't remember her name, was very slow, very, if you're 17, very not interesting. And my daughter was, I could just tell, I'm like, I could tell she was dying. And at one point I said, this is going to be great. I'm, I'm telling you, when this show starts, it's going to be great. And it was awesome. It was awesome. Like, David Gedge played his guitar, I'm going to say, so hard and so well. At one point, like, a string just came, like, bing, you know, springing off the guitar, quickly handed it to somebody else, which I know is not a measure of talent necessarily, but the guy was on fire. It was such an energetic, good show. And I kept thinking, you know, he's been doing this a long time, and he totally brings it. It was great, and it was really fun. And in the end, my daughter had to admit that she really liked it. I don't think she's going to be listening to it, but she enjoyed it. It was a great shared moment. You guys are obsessed with Trump. Did you used to date him? Because you pretend like you hate him, but I think you love him. I think what no one in this room wants to admit is that Trump has helped all of you. He couldn't sell steaks or vodka or water or college or ties or Eric. (laughs) But he has helped you. He's helped you sell your papers and your books and your TV. You helped create this monster and now you're profiting off of him. And if you're gonna profit off of Trump, you should at least give him some money because he doesn't have any. Uh, So this last Saturday night was an event that has become one of the most obnoxious displays of arrogance in this country. The White House Correspondents' Dinner, which we should say, putting off to the side, they do uh, support scholarships, right, for, for young people. And that's great. Lord knows it's sold out because anybody who's anybody wants to be there. I suppose the initial notion was to have the president show up and there's this camaraderie of the press corps. And now it has become this cultural touchstone of Potomac fever, how out of touch people can be. And honestly, I don't think the average working man or woman in America cares in the least, but it's a huge controversy. And now, with the onset of uh, President Trump and his relentless war on the media, I mean, it's the number one topic on his Twitter feed, uh, it it takes on almost an added importance. And this past weekend was a good example, Paula. Wow. I mean, so, so there was this Comedian Michelle Wolf, who's a writer, um, there have been accusations that she insulted the White House press secretary for her looks, which I think there's a debate about that. She meant, she referenced eyeliner. I'm not so sure. She said that she was wearing eyeliner made from the ashes, the ashes of, her of lies. lies. Of lies, right. That's not exactly attacking a woman for her appearance, per It's se. not exactly funny. Either. It was an awkward joke, but I think this kind of knee-jerk reaction that it was sexist and well, taking you know, on her Like any good New Englander, much. I was not watching this 
fiasco. Right. I was played? watching the Celtics. Yeah. It was game yeah, seven, course. okay? Yeah. But my Twitter feed started to blow up. And usually what I should do and what I urge everyone to do when your Twitter feed blows up is to take your phone and throw it across <laughs> the room. Hopefully hard enough so that it shatters and you never have to look at Twitter again. But uh, here we are on, on Monday afternoon, uh, almost 48 hours later, and the the fallout from this is still reverberating. Trump administration officials, the president himself, and all of his acolytes are saying, well, this just shows how biased the media is and back and forth. Many media people are joining in with yeah, that and demanding saying, demanding apologies. This was a disgrace. A lot of them want to do away with the dinner. I think what bothers me most about this and what has been bothering me for some time about this is uh, you want to raise money for scholarships? Mm -hmm. Great. You want to give out some awards for exemplary work? Terrific. But why does it also need to turn into this? Who is out there calling for a roast in which, uh, uh, you know, politicians get roasted by some comedian and all the reporters sit around there laughing uh, as they schmooze and kiss up to people who they're supposed to be covering. It's wrong on every level. Why do we still have this? Yes, because they want it. The people in the White House press corps want it themselves. They want their status elevated to celebrity status. They want to be seen as on par with the president. I think the death knell of this thing was when it started being televised on C-SPAN initially, right? And when they started inviting Hollywood actors and Kim Kardashian, what are they doing? Like I again, I get that it's for charity because it goes the money goes to scholarships. But you know what happened to the days when the ink-stained wretches and politicians uh, you know, pr maybe privately in back rooms, they had relationships, that, but they wouldn't socialize together. And it wasn't this coziness. Yeah. That and it, I just think it became gross. And look, it's one thing for Democrats, as some apparently do, mm -hmm. to feel that in the era of Trump, when he's constantly on the attack, he's trashing his opponents in the most vulgar possible ways, mm -hmm. uh, and it's constant they may feel, okay, we have to push back in a similar way, and we have to mock But that's uh, not him. where. But Do it in your work. Well, but that's, that's okay for politicians. Sure. But what are journalists doing engaging in that? I mean, look, right. uh, we have fun jobs. Mm -hmm. um, some of us are reasonably well compensated for these fun jobs. Uh, we're going to take a lot of heat because of the work we do. And what you do is you, you take it. I mean, if you're unfairly called out, your work is misrepresented, of course, you have to respond to that. But what is the this apparent notion that uh, journalists should drop down to the same level and start engaging. And, and I see a lot, it's not just this comedian from The Daily Show, comedienne, uh, who, who got down on the gutter. Uh, I, I see journalists all the time on their Twitter yes, feeds. Yes, on Twitter feeds especially. What is with that? That is completely inappropriate. And it damages the people doing it, I think. It does. It absolutely does. And look, let's not pretend that in some 
era long ago, some golden age, none of this went on. We all know Ben Bradley and his wife were friends with JFK and Jackie, and he didn't cover or write about what was going on during the Kennedy administration. The press corps concealed FDR's physical condition. You know, it's not as though the the press are completely unscathed. No, there was a lot of kissing up to Obama, A lot of kissing up. And let's face it, it's about access journalism, right? They're there in the city. They've all got, you know, the Potomac fever, and they've got to be able to get to each other. I think people sort of get that on one level. Um, But this business of getting dressed, having Zach Posen donate you a gown because you work at MSNBC and your husband's there in a tuxedo and you're on a red carpet. You are elevating yourself to entertainment status. Zach Posen, the shortstop for <laughs> Kansas City? Or? A different one. Oh, but that's so, a conversation okay. for another day. That went over but my I head. But I saw one MSNBC anchor yeah. on her Instagram feed in her Zach Posen gown. I mean, come on. You know, it, it just, it, it is it, the problem problem when the network news and cable news people have elevated themselves to celebrity status and then they're trying to cover the people objectively that they socialize with. And also, if you believe, as many people do, not without justification, that this war on the press that Trump has elevated to an unprecedented level verbally – uh, uh, although I must say the Obama administration was famous for sicking the Justice Department on whistleblowers, and they were not exactly press friendly. And but keeping the press out. If you believe that what Trump and his legions are up to is toxic and potentially damaging to free speech or to the credibility of the press, which doesn't have that much farther to fall if you look at the polling, uh, that's fine. Uh, it would seem to me that that would mandate that you have to stick to the high road. Of course. If you're a journalist, you cannot get down and engage in that because all you're going to do is feed the beast. The New York Times, by the way, will not attend. Their staff do not attend the White House Correspondents' Dinner. For this reason, they think it's become too much of an entertainment show. How about the rending of garments and the self-pity by the Trump people? Oh, how dare they be cruel to Sarah Sanders? Well, excuse me, your fearless leader is the nation's chief offender in derogatory comments about people's appearance. There is this guy, no one who will know who this is, and luckily for you, this guy, Matt Schlapp. Yes. Who's, I guess... He runs CPAC. This conservative political action conference. His wife, Mercedes, is a communications advisor to the president. Well, he comes... Didn't they leave in a huff? Well, they claim they did, although eyewitnesses say they were there pounding the drinks, having a great time, chatted with people amiably as they left. So a big phony fake thing. But he tweets out, uh, journalists shouldn't be in the business of claiming, uh, of accusing a president of the United States of lying. Excuse Sorry, that's me? their job. If they got a calm as they see it. job experience. Yeah. I think what most people watching, though, would rather see them be doing it in their work and not there with a comedian in a tuxedo and all of that. I, th- I, I think that's what sort of put the spotlight on this as being You know, uh, back, back at the beginning of the Trump administration, there was a, a debate in journalistic circles over whether newspapers and broadcast outlets should be saying, oh, the president lied about this. Mm-hmm. Was the word lie too harsh? We talked about that on uh, Beat the Press over on public TV a couple of times. Well, 
That debate is over. Everyone is doing it. Sure. CNN puts it up on the lower third chyron. I think people you know. have to call them as they see And them. I totally endorse that. That's what journalists yeah, are for. If, if someone is consciously and willfully misstating cold, hard facts, well, that's what a lie is, and we should call it that. I, I, I think locally an equivalent sort of event would be, I have heard journalists say before, that when Senator Kennedy used to have a cocktail party for the press at the Kennedy compound in Hyannisport on Cape Cod, a lot of people went. They felt that it was fine. They wanted to be able to chat with him. Many journalists, and I assume you're one included, would not go because they thought, how can you go to a senator's home, have cocktails with them? Uh, you know, I'm sure a lot of journalists, let's face it, loved the thought of going to the seat of Camelot and sort of hobnobbing with the, at this famous estate. But it uh, would have been awfully difficult to be there at that party and then cover him objectively for the rest no, of the year. That, that doesn't do you any good. Yeah. And, and you know what? Access journalism is a bunch of BS. I mean, I admittedly, you need sometimes, you know, you need to be able to be in touch with someone uh, to understand their point of view. Uh, a lot of people get dimes dropped to them as a result of their... But if you're sucking up to get it mm. and pulling your punches as part of that sucking up, uh, you're not honoring your profession. You're sullying Here it. Here it is Monday. You know people are still going to be talking about this on Twitter. Do you think, like once again, some coal miner in the middle of West Virginia and his wife and family could care less? They could not possibly care less. I'm a journalist in right. Boston and I could care less. <laughs> Identify problems. Come up with some solutions. Help people. Uh, knowledge is a great weapon. Great weapon. So we want people to keep subscribing, tell your friends. Thank you to everyone who's already listening. The podcast is available on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, Radio Public, Google Play. John, I think this is a hit. I think it's going to keep going. I don't know if we can go that far <laughs> yet. Well, I'm, being, I'm being a little facetious. <laughs> yeah. But I'm trying to say, well, look, tell everyone you know. Uh, <laughs> if you listen this far, thank you. Yeah. Uh, and do us one more favor, please. Tell us what you loved. Tell mm -hmm. us what you hated. Yep. Tell us what you want to hear on an upcoming edition of Studio BZ. I'm at Keller at Large on Twitter. Email Keller at WBZTV.com. I'm at Paula Eben WBZ, P. Eben at CBS.com. Mark Marin on his podcast reads all these great emails from people. David Axelrod, same thing on the X-Files. So well, can we, we would love to hear from can people. Can we just take those emails and read them? Do we have <laughs> to get our reply, own? But we would love our own. We would love to talk about everything Boston with you. And uh, every week, it's just a pleasure to do. Thanks, John. And, and as we always say, there's no way you can avoid it. We'll be we'll seeing you. you. Your status should flow from the quality of your work, not from uh, uh, what you're doing in a stupid ball gown and that hideous... Uh, Washington Hilton ballroom, which, by the way, smells like urine. I've been in there. <laughs> you, you, don't hear, you heard it here first. Yeah. It smells like urine. We'll leave it right there.